Good evening, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Last week, we returned to talking about the DSM, that big book used for diagnosis by psychiatrists everywhere in the United States. And while the creation of the DSM version 4 was uneventful, the DSM 5 was created in the 2000s, when the internet was present and also with a lot less transparency than some of the previous versions. This led to an outcry among many, most notably among some of the past creators of the DSM, who we talked about earlier on in this season. It was at this point that the American Psychiatric Association realized they could ignore the criticism no longer. If even the guys who had helped make this thing in the first place were pissed, it might be time to respond at least a little bit. To start, they created a new committee in 2009 whose job was to attend all the DSM meetings and interviewed various DSM staff without their bosses, Kupfer and Regeer, around. It turns out the DSM-5 team was kind of a mess. Many team members were openly critical of both the process and their leaders when they were asked about it. Kupfer was fairly unengaged in the project and delegated much of his work to Regeer, but Regeer was pretty disorganized, so delegating to him didn't actually get anything done. The committee reported their findings to the American Psychiatric Association, who were not happy, but also unsure of what to do about it. At this point, Regeer and Kupfer had been in charge of the DSM-5 for years. Completely replacing the top leadership this far into a project could be disastrous, and invite even more criticism. So the American Psychiatric Association decided to fix a poorly managed project by adding more bureaucracy on top, creating two new review committees that would basically double-check all the work of the DSM task force. And while I think the general effectiveness of this method is a little questionable, it actually seems to have turned out okay, and at the very least did address some concerns that psychiatrists had. The newly added committees helped to settle on standard ways to change diagnoses, and more empirical evidence was being used than ever in making decisions. Finally, in 2012, the DSM-5 was being prepared for its final release. The plan was basically to run through proposed changes with some special groups of psychiatrists, and then have everyone assembled at a big meeting and vote on this new version and its changes. Despite all the arguing over the last few years on the internet and over letters and such, there were only a few very specific points of contention by this stage of the DSM-5's creation, which I'm not going to bore you with and I think only psychiatrists would really find very interesting. On November 10th, 2012, at a Marriott in Washington, D.C., the final vote was held, which unanimously approved the DSM-5. I know, I know, it's kind of anticlimactic after all this. I was kind of hoping for some kind of epic showdown between past and present DSM chairs, but nothing really happened, because the process more or less got fixed. On May 19th, 2013, the DSM-5 was officially published after seven years of development work and 19 years after the release of the DSM-4. This was the most time any DSM version had taken, perhaps because a mix of problems caused by those earlier mishaps, but also a genuine use of a huge amount of evidence. 163 different experts had been consulted, giving over 100,000 hours of their time, reading over 10,000 papers, and consulting with hundreds of active clinicians, which is a just bonkers amount of effort, frankly. Even with all of this, the DSM-5 was not some huge change from the DSM-4, but more like a revision. The basic definition of mental illness from the DSM-3 was still in place, and the number of diagnoses actually went down, if you can believe it, from 297 to 265. 
After the release of the DSM-5, there was a bit more argument, but nowhere like what we had seen before. But all in all, since its publication, the DSM-5 hasn't been in the crosshairs very often. I'm sure, as always, somebody somewhere is complaining, on the internet probably, but it's certainly nobody as important as Robert Spitzer. I'm fairly young and certainly not a psychiatrist, but I remember when taking psychology courses for my minor in the mid-2010s, just a few years after the DSM-5's release, it seemed to be completely accepted, and I literally have no recollection of any articles or even discussion in the class critiquing the big book. So it seems like, in this case, the critiques of the DSM-5 process did help turn things around, and prevented what might have been a disaster for psychiatrists, patients, and really society as a whole. Instead, we got a modified but heavily evidence-based and rather uncontroversial new version of the DSM, which is still in use today. And so the moral of the story clearly is that you should always complain on the internet about bad things until they go away, at least if you can actually get people to listen. So that's it for the DSM, and really for the meat of this season. The release of the DSM-5 was only eight years ago as of the writing and recording of this episode, so we're basically caught up to the modern day. But as always, I need to talk about the future, and how psychiatry and the treating of mental illness may continue to change further into the 21st century. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you're enjoying this show. Forgive me for having a few short episodes, I was actually on vacation for a few days. But if you'd like to reach me, try any of the links in the show notes. I'm always happy to hear from a listener. Thanks also to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for our cover art, and Muse Open for this music. (laughs) 